0: Right now, though, taking a few moments to talk about what is happening to some UBC Okanagan students who have been told their classes are moving online. And Shelby Tom is a global news reporter in the Okanagan and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. I know you've been talking to students
0: who have been signing leases and moving around the province and getting ready and quite excited to get back to in-person learning. And what have they been told?
1: Yeah, that's right, just a nightmare situation for some students and their parents. They're scrambling right now after the human kinetics program at UBC Okanagan was suddenly moved online with notice given on Friday. So that's just over a week before the start of the fall 2021 semester. And UBCO said in an email to these students that the School of Health and Exercise Sciences made this decision to move lectures online based on the increasing number of COVID-19 cases in the Interior Health region. So a lot of people say that's understandable. What they're upset with here was the lack of communication and the lack of notice given. So many of these students from out of town, and think about the number of international students who have arrived on campus, they've moved into dorms, they've signed these eight-month rental leases if they're living in the Kelowna area, they've purchased UBCO parking passes and now they're told that their program has shifted online um, some of them say they feel left in limbo because there's been some indication from this program that components of it could be in person like labs and seminars and so they don't want to leave they're going to stick it out um, others say they want to sublease their apartments they want to head back home and live with their parents and do the online learning from there to save money and of course the other component of it is the impact on their mental health they're telling us how difficult last year was with the online learning uh, for their mental health and they didn't feel like they got the same educational experience they would have
2: if it was in person. I
0: want to play. So one of the people you've been chatting with is Adelina Pinter. And here's what she told you.
2: I'm from Fort St. John, BC, uh, which is like 12 and a half hours north of Kelowna. And so I don't live in Kelowna. I don't have a place in Kelowna. So every year I just rent. Um, So I signed a lease for eight months this year. That starts on Wednesday. And Part of me is regretting that decision again as last year because it's online, so I'm not too sure what I'm going to do yet. I really hope that with um, emailing, like I've emailed the dean and the faculty, and I know a lot of other students have reached out that they'll at least promise us to have labs in person or some kind of in-person engagement would be much appreciated from the faculty. So my indications were I was primarily listening to what the university was saying, And I've been listening to the broadcast by the president, Santa Ono, and even on Friday, there was a broadcast stating that both campuses are ready for in-person return. There are multiple COVID protocols taking place. There's rapid COVID testing. There's vaccination stations. There's a provincial mask mandate, and they're taking all these safety precautions to ensure a safe return to campus. And that announcement I watched Friday morning and Friday afternoon, the health and exercise science faculty messaged me saying we've made the decision to move online.
0: But you can get the frustration from there. Are you hearing anything from the university or any clarification why there seems to be this last minute switch?
1: no i've been looking into this since sunday and we haven't received a response to multiple inquiries uh, and requests for interviews from ubc okanagan so we're hoping to hear from them today uh, students and staff say they would feel a safe returning to campus of course we've heard from multiple post-secondary institutions about what kind of health and safety measures are in place there's this mandatory mask policy on campus at ubc okanagan Uh, mandatory vaccinations are not required for those in class instruction but they are going to have rapid testing available for those who have not been vaccinated and of course that provincial proof of vaccination program extends to student housing on campus restaurants and pubs sporting events other school gatherings, and so all the students I spoke to, they say they're fully vaccinated. They feel like uh, they're being punished for other people's decisions not to get vaccinated. Of course, we know Kelowna is a COVID-19 hotspot in the province. We are seeing high transmission here. Um, So they're calling for a hybrid model. They're saying, hey, we're fully vaccinated. We should be able to go back to class, and there should be an online uh, model available for those who are not or for those who don't feel comfortable returning to campus. But right now they don't have an option at this point, just one week notice that they're going back to online learning.
0: I wanted to play uh, another person you've been talking to is the UBCO student union president and the president. They're really picking up on something you mentioned, and that's the whole experience and the mental health of students.
2: Services will still need to be provided to, to students on campus food services. We as a student union expect those to all be fully running, uh, library services, uh, in-person safe event planning we expect to be still occurring at some point when the regulations allow it because although students may not be able to go to classes you know one of the most integral parts of your university experience is community engagement and that online learning does not provide those spaces and students are in isolation they're feeling unsafe they're feeling lonely and so we're really pushing the university to be um to get ahead of what we already know it's going to be coming for students in their mental health well-being and their physical well-being. Which makes
0: sense, and I understand where she's coming from on that. So where do things stand then, Shelby, as far as students have now been told uh, some components or most, if not all, components are going back online. Are, Are they just waiting to see if there's an update or what happens next?
1: Yeah, well, there's definitely been a public outcry. The UBC Okanagan Facebook page is flooded with complaints from students and their parents. And so we'll see if there is some sort of hybrid model uh, that they come to, if there's any sort of changes in the decision that they make. But as of now, you know, they told the students on Friday just a few days ago, uh, that lectures will be moved online. And uh, despite a lot of inquiries from these students and their families, they say they haven't received a response back. So that's where it stands now. And we'll definitely be uh, updating the story if anything changes.
0: And as far as you know, is this specifically for UBC Okanagan? Or do we know if something similar is happening at the Vancouver campus as well?
1: From what we know, this is the UBC Okanagan Human Kinetics Program. So everybody we spoke to is uh, enrolled in the School of Health and Exercise uh, Sciences. So we're being told that other classes and other programs are resuming to in-person Canvas learning at UBC Okanagan and that's why they feel like this is uh, very unfair. You can see UBC Okanagan responding to some of the complaints online saying it's a faculty by faculty decision. So it was this specific faculty that decided you know, we don't feel comfortable to have in-person learning resuming. Um, Despite the direction from the provincial government, health officials and UBC administration themselves, of course, we heard Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about how vital it was for post-secondary students to resume in-person learning, how transmission, there's a low risk in the classroom. We had the UBC President Santa Ono post a video on their social media channels on Friday talking about everything that they are doing to get to a safe place to resume in-person learning. So for them, in this specific program, Human Kinetics at UBC Okanagan, they feel like this is very unfair. It would be a different situation if it was the entire university shifting to online like last year, but it seems like this year it's some faculties that are deciding to move online and some faculties aren't. Um, despite that, you know, not being a recommendation from public health. So that's part of the problem as well.
0: All right. So we'll be watching to see if there are any updates on this for sure. Shelby, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us. Busy, busy day. We are going to talk more about those modeling numbers, what has been released as far as vaccination rates and hospital rates and illness in this province. We'll have more on that coming up a bit later on in the program and throughout the afternoon. Right now, though, we are shifting focus a little bit, and this is a story that has been ongoing for years. We've talked about this in the past on this station. And if you live in the area or you have driven by this area, you've probably, also wondered why is that huge swath of land in vancouver just sitting there empty well joining me with a pretty major update on the little mountain land sale is david chidnovsky who's a former bc new democrat mla thanks so much for being with us
3: Thanks for having me, Jill.
0: Uh, We've talked to you about this in the past and uh, some excellent work, both by reporters at the CBC as well as yourself filing the Freedom of Information requests. So what have you finally been able to find out about this land and the deal?
3: Well, it's been a long time coming. People started asking uh, to see this, uh, to see the deal, uh, thirteen years ago when it was first uh, when it was first signed in two thousand eight, three and a half years ago. I had submitted a freedom of information request to see the contract between Holborn Development Company and BC Housing, and now finally, yesterday, we got the the contract. And what we see is that it is an outrageous, outrageous deal. Uh, the first thing that's outrageous and that many of your listeners will be aware of is that we've had a gigantic vacant lot in the center of Vancouver um, for all of these years while we have a uh, crisis of, uh, of uh, housing and affordable housing. What we now know, because we've seen the, um, the contract, is that the, uh, the sale price was $334 million dollars. Of that, um, about $300 million uh, is a loan uh, to Holborn, uh, a mortgage to Holborn. Um, and you might ask, who who lent Holborn the money to pay $300 million for this uh, piece of land? And the answer is, we did. The people of, of British Columbia did. It's BC Housing that provided the mortgage to uh, Holborn to, uh, to purchase the land. And... Uh, in addition to that, we now know that there's a provision in the agreement that prevents, that uh, makes it, uh, that allows for Holborn, the company that purchased the agreement, the company that took the mortgage, uh, took the loan from us, it allows them not to pay any interest on that loan till 2026. So imagine, Jill, if you or I or any of your listeners went out to buy. A car or a house or a big piece of land, Um, and we took out a loan to do that, we'd be expecting to pay, uh, to start paying right away, principal and interest, um, but not Holborn. They play by different rules uh, that were uh, negotiated way, way back, and they don't have to pay any interest till 2026
0: and from what i understand i mean that's shocking in itself to try and wrap your head around the fact that they were given an 18 year interest free loan but also it looks like there was absolutely zero incentive to actually build anything
3: exactly um well well put um the contract is written in such a way that it encourages them to just sit around and do nothing um they've uh they've uh had contracted to build to replace only to replace and even that in itself is problematic only to replace the social housing that was there that's a that's a, that was a wrong-headed uh, provision in the contract from the beginning it's a great big piece of land we should have of course been building uh two or three times the the, the amount of social housing that was there before people desperately need those homes but they contracted to the so far they've built 53 units of social housing. It's 18 years later. The, the vacant lot has been there all this time. And the contract is written in such a way that uh, it's in their interest. It's in their interest to sit on the land, let it increase in value, and uh, do nothing at all. You'd think, you'd think that BC Housing would have put into the contract a provision that said, by 2014, so many units of social housing have to be built by two thousand and sixteen so many more units of social ho- housing have to be built by two thousand and twenty one All of the uh, units of social housing uh, should have been should have been built, but n- none of that 's there and so uh, Holborn has an interest in and are being encouraged by the by the provisions in the contract not to do anything. <laughs>
0: And should have said this off the top, in case people aren't familiar, we're talking about the site. I believe it's about six hectares. It's just south of of Nat Bailey Stadium in Vancouver. Uh, So, David, now that you've got this information, it's finally been released. You're getting a better idea, and we are getting a better idea on this contract, on this agreement. But a lot of people are going to be asking, well, why? Why on earth would BC Housing ever have made this deal?
3: It's hard to, to know, um, and it's, uh, it, any uh, comment I'd make would be speculative, but that's why today um, I have announced that I'm calling for, and I've, uh, everybody I've talked to so, uh, so far today is supportive, calling for a public inquiry. That's why we need a public inquiry, to find out why in the world, wh- how could this have possibly happened? Think about it. There were 700 people living in a community, a social housing community, a very successful social housing community, um, and their community was destroyed, and their houses were demolished. And there's been a vacant lot there, substantially a vacant lot, for eight, uh, for 12 years since they uh, since they uh, demolished the demolished the site. And we need to know why. We need to know what was the mo- we know what the motive of uh, of uh, Holborn Development Company is. It's making money. But what was the what was the motive of B.C. housing and the then B.C. liberal government? Um, Rich Coleman was the minister at the time. What was their motive in doing this? How is it possible that they negotiated such a sweetheart deal for the developer? That's why I think it's important that we have a public inquiry.
0: And I know many people have been trying to get answers from people that were involved in this deal and to find out more about it. Do you have any indication, I mean, this is a piece of property that is in a very busy part of the city and it's mm-hmm. there's been this attention paid to it. Do you have concerns or is there the possibility that similar deals were also signed, perhaps deals that we don't even know about?
3: Well, at the time, Minister Coleman said that um, he crowed about this deal. He was out publicly saying what a wonderful deal it was, and sa- and, and indicated that it might be a model for other social housing communities. Um, but this has been such a a disaster, and it be- and it was it was clear that it was a, des- a disaster from the beginning. That they never went ahead, uh, that we know of, and um, and used it as a model for uh, for other. Uh, other social housing communities. And I certainly hope that no government, no government. There's one, you know, one of the lessons. It's a tragic lesson, unfortunately. But one of the lessons here is you can't do this. You can't have this kind of uh, of uh, deal. That's really an embarrassment to the city and an insult. An insult to all of those folks who are desperately in need of affordable housing, social housing, and there are thousands of them across the province and in the city. You can't have this kind of model, and, uh, and maybe that's one of the lessons that we get out of this debacle.
0: What was it that led to the documents finally being released?
3: Well, uh, three and a half years ago, uh, I got tired of waiting. Uh, we uh, members of our community I live you know five minutes away from the from the uh, little housing site, the little mountain housing site and and many members of the community and former residents had been asking for years and years and years to see the details of the of the uh, of the contract uh, they weren 't forthcoming and finally, three and a half years ago, I made a submission uh, uh, for under the freedom of uh, information legislation. Uh, to see the contract. Subsequently, a young journalist from CBC, Jeremy Allingham, uh, made a similar application. And th- that uh, those two applications have been w- wending their way through the uh, freedom of information uh, process. And, of course, Holborn opposed and stalled and used every bureaucratic tactic in the book, all of the uh, provisions for for stalling that are, that are in this kind of legislation, Three and a half years later, after they lost the hearing and got uh, the last year, um, finally there was a hearing under the Freedom of Information uh, legislation and the the adjudicator trashed their position. They claimed that somehow there was a financial uh, loss. Uh, from their point of view, if the if the contract were made, was made public and the the adjudicator said that they 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 didn't make that case at all and was very uh, scathing in her uh, um, uh, analysis of their of their case, so we won. And what happened next? Well, uh, Holborn went uh, to court and tried to get a judicial review of the decision of the Freedom of Information people. Now. Uh, we knew that they had no case. We knew that uh, that under the legislation they were going to lose. And finally, a couple of weeks ago, they threw in the towel um, uh, after having uh, uh, stalled some more and uh, wanting to schedule for this month uh, hearings uh, he- hearings under the um, uh, in a, a judicial review. They finally threw in the towel and said, "Okay." Uh, they didn't say this, but they threw and they 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 uh, re- uh, decided not to go forward because they knew they were going to lose. And finally, yesterday, uh, the contract was made public to me and to the other applicant, and uh, now we know a lot more about this case.
0: All right. Well, we'll be looking at, like you said, a lot of people still uh, have a lot of questions uh, that people would like to see answered from those involved in that deal. I, I know we have not heard the last of this. Thanks so much for your time, though, and for coming on the program today.
3: Thanks so much, Jill, for your interest in this story.
0: We are going to talk a little bit about what is happening in Afghanistan and continued efforts to help people who are still in that country, still hoping to get out of that country. Joining me now is Omar Kawan, a Vancouver-based co-founder of Goose Insurance. Omar, thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Joe.
0: Uh, People might wonder, well, what does Goose Insurance have to do with this? But uh, you are a co-founder and you are helping to provide aid for Afghan refugees. Can you talk a little bit about what prompted you to do that?
4: Absolutely. You know, and as an Afghan-Canadian, I mean, um, I can't... Um, it, it's gut, gut-munching to see what's happening in Afghanistan. And we have all been impacted so much. Um, so at Goose, we decided to help um, as much as we possibly can. And one of the best ways for us to do that was to uh, um, look at helping and aiding families that are resettling in Canada. Um, you know, we are limited. Um, to some extent, as Afghans, we do feel a little bit helpless in terms of trying to help people who are in Afghanistan right now because of the current situation. But those people who have been able to successfully evacuate and resettling and starting a new life in Canada, they also have a lot of needs. Um, And for us, one of the best ways uh, to help was essentially looking after those families that are going to be starting a a new life and hopefully uh, a much more prosperous and happily life uh, than what they've been used to in Afghanistan so far.
0: Uh, I understand you were born and raised in Afghanistan. So what is it like for you to now look and see what's happening there?
4: Um, like I said, it's just completely uh, gut-wrenching. There's uh, there's uh, a deep sadness um, for, for me and for many Afghans, and we have been experiencing this uh, over the last few weeks, and just to watch the fall of the government almost instantaneously and every kind of, all the hard work. I mean, we keep talking about, what has gone in there in in the in, in Afghanistan in terms of aid and money that's been spent by U.S. and all the allies, but it's also the hard work and the progress that the Afghan people have made in the last twenty years, um, trying to kind of build a better country um, and 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 achieve um, some significant milestones, and to, to to see that all be gone in a split of a second is just one of the hardest things that I've ever experienced myself, um, um, you know, and especially being miles and miles away and, you know, and, and feeling a little bit this, this strong sense of, of helplessness, but also the, the uh, urge to help, but not being able to do so uh, has been a real challenge for all of us.
0: Have you been able to talk with anybody or contact friends or family that are still there?
4: Um, I don't have any uh, direct family that are uh, that live in Afghanistan today, but I've, I have a lot of acquaintances. So, um, you know, over the years, I've been part of a wonderful society here uh, in, in Vancouver called Beacon Hope for Afghan Children's Society as well, where we actually rebuild um, Afghan uh, schools and uh, provide Um, support and supplies in in, in Afghanistan as well as the uh, only only children's hospital uh, in Afghanistan called the Indra Gandhi Children's Hospital as well. And I've actually traveled to Afghanistan uh, three times over the last 10 years um, as part of these projects, as part of our reconstruction project. So I know a lot of people... um, that we have crossed paths with uh, acquaintances, distant friends and, and relatives as well that have reached out that they want. They, they're desperately looking for ways to evacuate um, and leave Afghanistan. Um, and right now uh, it's a bit hard with all the borders being closed and the um, and obviously U.S. Uh, kind of leaving uh, Afghanistan yesterday as well on their last uh, evacuation flight.
0: Uh, there have been some absolutely heartbreaking stories, but also some inspirational ones. Looking, I know uh, one of the, the correspondents with the Globe and Mail working so hard and then filing a story that Ukraine actually went in and helped to, to get people out after uh, Canada had stopped its mission and, and it looked like there wasn't a lot of hope. What is your reaction when you see those kinds of stories?
4: Absolutely. It's very much uh, heartwarming. You know, the the Afghan people have gone through so much. I mean, they they have been through years and years and years of war and terrorism and turmoil. And, you know, it just doesn't seem to be ever ending. Um, and these civilians have been impacted. And most of them who have actually evacuated uh, Afghanistan through the Kabul airport, they've made, we got to remember that these people have made these decisions to leave Afghanistan, the land that they, they were born in and grew up in, was working instantaneously. So, you know, in a split of a second, they probably got whatever they had and locked their homes and left. And most of them will not be returning for a very long time, so uh, or ever. So, these are some. These are some really, really tough decisions that uh, Afghan people have made, and um, and it's it's just completely sad to see what's happening there. Um, but it's also very nice to see, you know, um, us and the allies trying to evacuate as much people as possible. Obviously, we wish that it would be for longer and more people would be able to uh, evacuate. But the situation. But what we can do right now is to help those people who are. Um, resettling in various countries, including Canada, and try to help them because they have gone through so much uh, emotionally, even in the last few days. Um, I know stories of people who have been at the Kabul airport for seven or, or nine days before they can get on a flight and you know, sleeping on concrete or on, on, the, on, the gro- on the ground and having no food or water. So um, these people who are coming here, there's so much that we could do to help them as well.
0: And you mentioned, too, that you yourself have been back three times in the last 10 years and working with the the Gandhi Children's Hospital there. Do you think you'll be able to go back at any point?
4: Unfortunately, I don't see it right now um, or in the near future. um, as much as we would love to because we have so many kids. I mean, this, this, this charity that I was part of for many, many years and I helped co-found as well, um, we've, we've helped over 1,500 students kind of go through school and provide them school supplies and, and, and kind of financial needs and families to go through uh, so they don't have to be basically street kids and, and, and work for and provide for their family. Um, I would love to go see them again and I would love to, for us to continue to support them and it's just been very very tough and, and unfortunately we don't see that with the current situation and i hope it does get better i mean there's a lot of promises that are being made by the current um government and and, and, and taliban that have taken over so we'll see what that's going to look like but uh, at this point um it's hard to say
0: Right. Uh, I wanted to touch base once again or, or touch on what exactly you're doing here, because uh, as I mentioned, you are the co-founder of an insurance company. So how are you providing the aid or do you have a goal on how much aid you're hoping to provide for people that are here or people that have fled and need help?
4: Um, we would like we would like to help as much as possible. So Goose is basically a, a Vancouver-based um, uh, startup, um, uh, which we're on the mission to make uh, insurance affordable, convenient, uh, and accessible for Canadians. Um, uh, and essentially, think of it as um, you know an app that you can buy uh, any type of insurance that you need for your um, uh, day-to-day life. So uh, we will be donating um, uh, proceeds of our sales um, uh, between now and end of the year um, directly to charities that will be helping uh, Afghan refugees resettling into Canada. Um, We don't have a specific goal, but I think, you know, we would love to sort of see if we can reach, you know, 50,000 or more. Um, That would be sort of the ideal goal if we can do that. Um and you know the and we are in conversations right now with various charities who are actually in the process of, you know, uh building programs though to help these families uh as well. And one way that, you know, Canadians can actually help us is just basically simply buy uh the kids insurance product from uh, Goose Insurance, which is literally for $60 per year. Um, it covers your children uh, for any kind of accidental um, sort of emergencies as well as it has a good critical illness coverage. So, um, and the whole idea is, you know, as we protect our kids, and I'm a father of two here, you know, the most important thing for me is just to protect my children. Um, uh, and yeah, we want to extend that to these families that are coming in, and especially the young children uh, that are coming in and, and resettling in Canada.
0: All right. Well, people can check it out then. I'm guessing they can go to the the website gooseinsurance.com to learn more about that. Omar, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your personal experience and what you're doing now. Appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much. Thanks for Joe for having me.
0: All right, we are going to talk a little bit about fishing on the Fraser River, the industry, and some of the ups and downs. Joining me now to talk more about this is Jason Tonelli. He is the owner of Pacific Angler. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: No problem, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: I know you've written a piece about the politics surrounding the decisions when it comes to Chinook openings on the Fraser. Before we get into that, how has it been this year as far as uh, fishing? Have you been able to get out there or do anything?
5: Well it was uh, it was a bit of a tough start to the season with Covid. Uh, but once we did get uh, rolling sort of in the July time of year, uh, it was slow. It was tough. I mean we we normally have a chinook opening um, April, May, June, July, but uh, as some of your listeners might know, we're in the second year of a no chinook fishing regulation in the Vancouver waters from April first to august thirty first. So uh, that's definitely curtailed our our opportunity here in Vancouver. And obviously the, the
0: reasoning is given that it's about stocks and making sure that stocks are, are saved and preserved. But what are your thoughts on the fact that there is no fishing allowed for those
5: months? Well, it's, um, there's two scenarios. I mean, we weren't allowed to fish for Chinook in the spring, sort of the April, May, June. Now we're specifically talking about August. Uh, once again the Department of Fisheries and Ocean didn't allow us to fish off the mouth of the Fraser where um in as little as three years ago we were able to fish there and catch two Chinook a year. Um this year we weren't allowed to fish for Chinook at all. Um, you know, and that and uh, unfortunately um you know there's tens of thousands of Chinook getting taken in gillnets in the river. Uh meanwhile the public sector isn't allowed to harvest those fish off the mouth even though they were given ample or DFO has given ample opportunity through Sports Fish Advisory Board proposals to to do so. And that's that's really what I think uh, people need to realize.
0: Uh, you've written about this and the chance of uh, hooking a Chinook or a Chinook stock of concern throughout those months. Can you kind of walk us through the numbers and what, what your take is on that?
5: Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people just look at Chinook as a whole. But the reality of it is, is obviously the Fraser is made up of uh, a variety of different runs. Uh, the Chinook stocks of concern that you hear about so much often are off the mouth of the Fraser, April, May, June, July. And as, uh, as fishers, sports fishers, public fishers, we fully support not fishing off the mouth of the Fraser at that time. But, uh, Jill, the reality of it is in August, those fish are gone. Uh, most of the stocks of concern have uh, pushed up the river. Uh, if we are able to retain a Chinook between 62 and 80 centimetres in August, your chance of hooking the stock of concern off the mouth of the Fraser at that time would be less than 1%. So we're simply asking that we can go out and harvest the Chinook in that 62 to 80-centimeter size range using a single barbless hook, and we're only asking for one a day and 10 a year. So so that's really uh, where DFO has said no, and that's that's what's driving the public fishery to the point of uh, demanding some opportunity and some justice.
0: And in addition to that, there was a DFO release not too long ago talking about the number of illegal gill nets that had been seized, and it looks like it's been a really bad year for that.
5: Yes, unfortunately, we're looking at record illegal activity in the river. I mean, um, we we do support uh, priority access to First Nations. So last year, First Nations retained about twenty five thousand Chinook in river. For food, and social ceremonial purposes, which is which is great. I think most public fishers are well in support of that. The year previous, it was forty thousand fish. Keep in mind, during those two years, there was no public access. But even more alarming is the fact that over two hundred and twelve uh, illegal gill nets have been seized in the river. I believe that's a record for this time period. And the conservation and protect- protection officers—they're—they're—you know—they're understaffed. There's vacant positions. Uh, I believe they're underpaid. In my opinion, people are transferring out. You know, it's it's a real problem that uh, Vancouver residents need to know about.
0: Is it your understanding the illegal gill nets that have been seized? Are they being seized from people actively fishing, or are they being seized gill nets that have been set adrift?
5: Well, it's it's difficult for the conservation and protection officers to catch someone in the act. Um, gill nets are very effective if if just hung up uh, to fish statically. Um, they're also quite a bit of illegal drift gill netting at night, and you can imagine for um, the conservation and protection officers to run a jet out at night. I mean running running the Fraser in a jet out at any time it can be perilous, but at night can be especially dangerous. So I feel for these guys, um, I talk to them. they're they're great officers. they're doing the best they can. but we need more um, they need more officers, they need more money and and that's just you know where the problem lies. We need more enforcement period.
0: So starting tomorrow then, as we're now in the last day of August, are we getting to a place then, will there be retention allowed for uh, people like yourself or people going out there and and sport fishing?
5: That's right. So we are opening for Chinook retention uh, September 1st for two a day. Um, The problem is the fish are gone. Uh, The the main healthy run of Chinook is uh, a Thompson River Chinook run. Um, The prime migration for those fish is in the second and third week of August. And uh, that's primarily what uh, First Nations is harvesting for their food social social and ceremonial purposes. You know, and and that's when we need to be open. Uh, um, We're kind of picking up the breadcrumbs here September 1st. There'll be a a few of those fish left and a few more Chinook that are heading towards the Harrison and the Better Chilliwack. But for the most part, the season is done. We're shut down for the prime six months of the year uh, the government has the sports fish advisory board proposals to allow sustainable harvest we just need them to adopt them uh,
0: so i would imagine though even if the, if the fish are mainly gone if the, even if the idea being there are still a few out there do you think it's going to be busy on the fraser tomorrow in the coming days
5: it it is going to be busy and that's actually one of the problems i mean you you the department of fisheries and oceans has created a gold rush a gold rush mentality where um you're probably going to see hundreds of boats off the mouth of the Fraser out there tomorrow, because that's the only opportunity they have. Um, there's, there's a much better way to do this. There's the ability to have uh, sustainable harvest throughout the summer uh, with a reduced um, uh, catch ratio of one fish per day instead of two fish per day. Uh, you know, there, there's quite a few proposals put forward where 25 MPs across multiple parties, we're talking NDP, conservative, in uh, Greens signed off on this. In fact, the only MPs not to sign off on it were basically Liberal. So there, there is an opportunity to have a more spread out, sustainable season. Uh, we just need some progressive management from DFO to get there.
0: What's going to happen to your industry if things don't change?
5: Well, a lot of us in the industry we didn't want to make drastic decisions. You know, you, you, we've had two years of a Chinook closure on top of COVID, so it was pretty tough to. Um, to make bigger picture decisions, but I'm telling you, if you, if you take an area like Vancouver, where we have such a dynamic sports fishery, we have people coming from all over the world, spending millions of dollars, creating thousands of jobs, staying in hotels, eating at restaurants, just for the opportunity to uh, hook one Chinook a day. If that's taken away from April 1st until August 31st, it's over. Um, You know, Chinook is the driving force of the public fishery, and we need some opportunity Uh, to continue uh, this public fishery heritage and frankly if we don't get it next year i i I would imagine that most operators are just going to have to shut their doors
0: all right jason thanks so much for making the time for us and for coming on to talk about this today appreciate it
5: appreciate it jill thank you